The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Well, let me try in what remains of time to talk briefly about common grace. But to do so, I have still to review briefly our background. We have been talking about Christianity as a challenge to non-Christianity. Christianity believes in the triune God of Scripture. You'll know nothing about him except from Scripture. And it is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In each case, the initiative is taken by the Father for creation, the Son for redemption, the Holy Spirit for sanctification, application of redemption. Now, that two-circle view, two view of Christianity is, of course, the Reformed Protestant point of view. Now, here's the Greek point of view, in which man is autonomous. He is not a creature. He is assumed not to have become a sinner in history. That just didn't happen. And he doesn't need salvation through the Son of God incarnate, and he couldn't have it if he did need it. There is no once-for-all finished revelation of God in history, and there certainly cannot be an atoning death of Christ once for all. There cannot be the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. There can be no necessity for it, and it can't happen here in this world. Now, when early Christianity came upon the scene, after a while the Roman Catholic Church developed, and it took a totally different view of Christianity. It said this non-Christian point of view isn't bad at all. Paul says we must show the natural man that, he, that his position has been made foolishness with God, that it is inherently meaningless because the individual can't identify himself. If he could, he'd have to know everything about everything by means of his principle of unification such as Parmenides has. And yet he couldn't know anything about anything because his principle of individuation is that of facts out of sprung from pure contingency, just like a black cat on a dark December night, a little darker than today, in a, in a black coal bin looking for a black spot that isn't there. Now, that's as foolish as is the non-Christian position from the Christian point of view. Now, the Roman Catholic Church says, no, there's nothing foolish about this. That's what everybody has to do. And we all, Christians, must not at that point, when they interpret themselves and nature, we mustn't at all challenge them. What they there say on that point is right, fundamentally right, even though you may disagree on points. Now, therefore, their system is that you add nature as interpreted by the non-believer, add grace to it, which is given to us through the church. Now, that grace is the same for all, in the sense there's no distinction there between special and saving grace. It's all saving grace. That is to say, it is inherent in the situation that man who is purely contingent and who is not a sinner fully, that he is being lifted in the scale of being gradually to participate in deity. 
Now, in the Greek position, man is inherently participant in deity. He is, by virtue of his rationality, divine. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has not challenged that position. It builds on it. It pretends that the doctrines of grace can be adequately stated when you have first stated the philosophy of nature in terms of Greek philosophy. Now came the, came the Reformation. It challenged the Roman Catholic position on this point. That is to say, no, we do not know by ourselves for what we are, or God for what he is, by starting as though man could interpret himself and then add to it and have uh, come at last to a God. We receive what we receive by revelation, special redemptive revelation, which comes to us from the triune God, and it is significant that Calvin even added to the doctrine of the Trinity the idea of the auto of the Son, the deity of the Son, in order to make perfectly sure that even in its formulation, the Christian church should start from the equal ultimacy of the three persons of the Trinity, so there should be no gradation that the Son was lower, as was the case with many of the early church fathers, than the Father, and the Spirit again lower than the Son. In other words, the three persons of the Trinity internally, eternally, self-referential, self-sufficient. Now, that God has created in the nature of the case. If there's any other being beside himself, how else would it come into existence but by virtue of the absolute initiation of this God, this triune God? Now, don't you see on that point then, on creation, the Roman, the Protestant Reformation, and notably Calvin, stands square over against the Roman Catholic position, which says that you can combine the creation idea with the participation idea of the Greeks, that you can combine the God of the Bible or identify with the God of the Greek notion of analogy. Now, Aristotle, as you know, had an idea of the analogy of being in which there was a combination equally ultimate parts of pure universality and pure diversity, pure abstract identity and pure contingency. That was his notion of analogy. Now, it is the Roman Catholic Church has taken over this notion and says there's nothing wrong with it. And then it applies it and broadens it out so as to include nature and grace, Christianity and natural theology. Now, that's the Roman Catholic notion of analogy of being. Thomas Aquinas takes over the Thomistic notion of the analogy of being and then adds Christianity to it and combines the totality of these two in a new notion of analogy, which is not different in principle, don't you see, from the Greek notion. It's only expansion of it so as to make room for and include Christianity. Now, on the Bible, therefore, the Reformation said the necessity of the Bible the clarity of the Bible and the sufficiency of the Bible, the necessity of it, the Bible is because man, as a creature, has become a sinner. Now, that was not the necessity for the Bible that Rome gives. Oh, no, man isn't in need of redemptive revelation. He knows what he needs. He needs to be lifted in the scale of being, he says, and 
whatever gods there be and become incarnate in Christ must adjust themselves to this sort of thing and therefore the church is the continuation of the incarnation. Now, therefore, we have a new view of the necessity of Scripture and of the clarity of Scripture. Rome says there's nothing clear in this world. We must find out whether God exists. We already know something by natural reason about these facts, but there may be the necessity. We don't know it exhaustively. There's an awful lot of mystery around us. As the Greeks said, there's a lot of mystery around all of us. And so we must see whether perhaps there is a teleology in nature which points to a God that is above nature. Now, don't you see, that is, therefore, therefore there's no clarity. Well, the Protestant Reformation on the basis of Scripture says, every fact clearly reveals God. That's what Paul says when he says, non ton theon, knowing God. Not possibly knowing, probably knowing, but certainly knowing, as well as the prodigal son who knew that he had left his father's home, and he couldn't make himself believe that he was anything but the son of this father. Well, now, don't you see? That is repression. Now, the Roman Catholic position doesn't do any justice, has, in fact, no room for this biblical notion, Paul's notion, of the repression of the revelation of God. Now, that provides the proper obscurity so that man can construct things that he thinks will satisfy him and yet that make himself believe that he's done justice by the facts. Now, therefore, what the Reformation is is not the three points that are usually or frequently associated with it. This doctrine of Scripture, justification by faith, and universality of the priesthood of believers. It is those, but it's, it's different on every doctrine. The Protestant doctrine differs on the doctrine of God, on the doctrine of creation, on the doctrine of man, on his fall, on redemption, on the judgment. There is not a judge, not a just doctrine in the whole conspectus of Christian thinking that is not differently thought of in the case of Reformation than in the case of Romanism. And that's why it has inherent in it a new, a radically different method of approach to the unbeliever. And that's why only when you get Calvin, whose Calvin's position, Calvinism, is not the five points, just the five points, tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, perseverance of... I forgot one. Now, it isn't just that. What Warfield said and Bobbing said, Calvinism is Christianity come to its own. Every doctrine is more consistently biblically expressed than at any other place, notably on the doctrine of man, for instance, where even Lutheranism, not Luther himself, but later Lutheranism, for instance, Pieper writes in his famous book on doctrine, that Calvinism is rationalism, determinism. Lutheranism does justice to the freedom of man, he says. Well, now, therefore, what Calvinism is, is the greater consistency on the sovereignty of God, and therefore, only in Calvinism do you have the notion of the sovereignty of God's grace. Because the man who receives this grace is a creature he has no existence of himself, no power of himself, and he has become a sinner 
and doesn't deserve anything but the wrath of God. Well, now, then, there's where you have grace, and you need the notion, the biblical notion, of special or saving grace purely expressed, biblically expressed, before you can even begin fairly to talk about common grace. Now, it will seem, then, as though when you hold the Reformed position or the Calvinist position, that then you have to exclude people that are not Christians from any consideration, as God has no concern with them. And that was the charge at Dort on the part of the Remonstrants, or later called Armenians. Now, they had left over in their theological thinking a measure of Roman Catholicism. They had left the Roman Catholic Church, and they wanted to stay out. Many others did, for reasons other than this scriptural question of redemption through sovereign grace alone. But when the Reformed churches stated its position biblically and fully, then they reacted negatively. And they developed five points of their own in terms of which they developed a doctrine of common grace. That is to say, grace which is saving in principle, common to all. Salvation is open to all in the sense that God, through Christ, makes it possible for everybody else, for everybody in the universe, all men everywhere, to be saved. Just as if I came along with a truck and a very low step so that you could step on it if you wanted to. And I said to you in Glenside, I've got $100,000 in the bank for each of you. Now, I just provided that possibility for you to have easy going for the rest of your days here at the seminary, financially. But you're stupid enough not to step on this truck. Don't you see? That's the reason. You can step on if you want to. Well, of course, Calvin would say, you don't drive with a truck through a cemetery and say, whosoever will, come out of the tomb, step on the truck. You don't say anything of the sort. You do say, whosoever will, but you add that it is of God to give you to will and to do sovereignly. Now, then, of course, came up the question at once, how then do you reform people who are trying to put us out of the church, they said, uh, make room for the universal offer of the gospel? And that has been the bone of contention in the center of the common grace question. Now, don't you see, Herman Huxma, who, who, on the paper of Monday, he was discussed. He said, God cannot have any attitude of favor toward the non, for toward the reprobate at all, because from all eternity he has decided they shall not be saved, they are reprobate, and therefore there cannot be any attitude of favor toward them. On the other hand, the Armenian says, and I had a very striking and interesting example of that here in the early days in the person of Percy Crawford, who said, wrote me a paper in Junior Systematics then. He says, the Bible says whosoever will. Calvin says God elects certain people. Therefore, Calvin is wrong. Well, I know those whosoever will passages. I told Percy as well as you do. Not any better, but not any worse. Now, the prob- you haven't faced the problem. 
The problem is that there is obviously the teaching of the sovereign electing grace of God. And there is equally obvious the teaching of the universal offer of salvation. The pamphlet by Dr. Stonehouse and Mr. Murray on the universal offer of the gospel is exceedingly useful on this point. Well, now then, what are you up against? You have, as it were, two parallel ropes going through the ceiling, and they're not tied together under the ceiling. Now, don't you see, the Armenian wants to tie them together under the ceiling, because by his principle of logic, electing grace cannot be true. Therefore, he must say, I want to see through. Now, that's Parmenidean logicism. That's anti-Christian destruction of the sovereignty of God's grace. But Huxma is just as bad. He's hyper-Calvinistic in the sense that he says history has no meaning, really. I argued in this little book on common grace at the time against Huxma. I said, if it is true that God hasn't cannot have any attitude of favor to the non-elect, then neither can he have any attitude of disfavor to the elect. In other words, God can't even punish them. He can't say, if you don't do this, you will be lost. He can't even conditionally threaten them. The threats of the Bible, the covenantal wrath of the Bible, just wouldn't have any meaning in that case. Now, don't you see that you have a case of Herman Huxman and Percy Crawford, each representing the one hyper-Calvinism, the other hyper-Arminianism, and which is usually the position of evangelical fundamentalism, which starts as a rule by saying, well, the Bible teaches whosoever will, therefore, it must be true that God wants the salvation of every man living, and that, that there's no distinction between his secret will by which he finally determines the lot of every man and his revealed will, by which he commands men to repent. That's why Dr. Pieper says Calvinism is rationalism, because he takes the fundamentalist point of view on this score. Well, now, of course, and as was suggested, Dr. Skilder of the Netherlands, uh, they both reacted to Herman, to, to Abraham Kuyper's great work on on uh, Common Grace and to Bobbing's essay on Common Grace because they said if you overdo Common Grace you will lose the gospel of salvation by grace alone. Now that was the issue for many years in reform circles in this country and also in the Netherlands. And it is in that connection that I wrote my little book not because I thought I could contribute something brilliant but because I was desperately in need of seeing how what the Bible teaches on the universal offer of salvation, how we must relate that to what the Bible equally clearly teaches on the sovereignty of God's grace. Now, it seems to me that therefore you can profitably distinguish in the teach by things by saying that the Bible teaches both, obviously. You don't tone down on either of them. Neither does the Bible say that they are contradictory. That's the modern point of view. That's the neo-Orthodox point of view, that you can believe the contradictory. Well, you can't, and the Bible doesn't say 
that it is contradictory. It just says these are the facts. It assumes that in God, above the ceiling, they are tied together. And that's why you can hang a swing on this rope, these ropes. Because if they were tied together the way Arminianism wants them tied underneath, then, of course, the child you put in this swing will fall into the abyss of the unrelated. (laughs) Now, uh, don't you see? Now... What I'm trying to say is that, therefore, what we need for a Christian apologetics, that was my interest primarily, a Christian philosophy of history, don't you see? And to get a Christian philosophy of history, you have to say that God's counsel is back of whatsoever comes to pass. You also have to say that what happens in history, man's choices, beginning with Adam, who rebelled against God and who brought the whole human race into ruin, as the Bible says. And it doesn't qualify that. So much so that because of that, the second Adam, Christ, had to come to redeem men from that wrath of God. And those that will not accept that Christ are still under that wrath of God. And that's the consequence of an act of one man in history representing all other men in history. Now, we must not tone down on that meaning of history. Now, I thought that Herman Hooksman did did tend to tone down on it, or really very seriously, and that even Skelder, by his distinction between human nature, God loves human nature as such, but he doesn't love sin as such. You know, that's only a pretty artificial distinction. In other words, we ought frankly to admit that here's the apparently contradictory but that we presuppose, we don't try to say this position is better in accord with logic as you people on the other side understand logic because if it were, if we try to show that, then we would try to show that Christianity isn't Christianity because then, don't you see, you would, we would try to show that Christianity is what Parmenides wants it to be or what Heraclitus wanted it to be or what somebody like Thomas Aquinas binding them together wants it to be. Well, now, therefore, it seems to me that we ought to present the whole of the Christian position on its, on its doctrine of God, creation, fall, redemption through Christ. That's the way Paul presents the story. Creation, redemption through Christ, the resurrection, and the judgment. And here, incidentally, is also the argument with Dr. Doyabert. Dr. Doeyward has marvelously set forth the basic non-Christian character of the whole of non-Christian thinking. In terms of the nature of the form-matter scheme of the Greeks, the nature-freedom scheme of modern thinking, I would rather simply take them together, the autonomy of man, the non-rational character of the principle of individuation, the universal principle of continuity that is above God and man, and then point out for when we put ourselves for argument's sake upon that position, that experience has no meaning whatever. You can't even get in started interpreting life. Now, in his later efforts in the new critique of theoretical reason, Doeyward argues like this. He says, I am now, in distinction from what I formerly did, stressing the transcendental method. Leaving out, he says, the transcendent question. Therefore, I'm asking my followers to leave that 
theological question out and deal in purely philosophical fashion on a common ground, on a common basis with those who oppose us, particularly he's thinking of the Roman Catholics with whom he has been reasoning for a good many years now, and then the states of affairs, if we analyze theoretical thought per se, we'll see that it needs to be supplemented by time and its products, and that that needs to be supplemented again by a self, which is supratemporal as a, as a reference point, and then that self being in itself empty points to a God, whether that God be the God or the Bible or not. Now, I'm inclined to think that this is leading us back to scholasticism. Now, I hate very much to say that. I've learned so much from Dr. Dewey Wert, and I'm not saying it with any highfalutin spirit, I hope, because by the grace of God alone we learn, and standing on the shoulders of giants, pygmies learn. Now, there we are. How does that fit into common grace? Well, you see, that again tones down the need for common grace, because then everybody can do what only by common grace the natural man can do, not by virtue of what he has it in him to him, in it of himself. Now, that is the thing we have to say. Here is the natural man. The Bible says that the natural man knows not the things of the Spirit of God because they are discerned spiritually, that is, by the Holy Spirit. Now then, what do you make of all the good things that the natural man has done? All the good things that he does, he contributes to the Red Feather campaign, doesn't he? And he can be a scientist. He can not only number things, counting. I think Kuiper is mistaken in saying that the antithesis doesn't enter into the field of numerical questions and of logical relations. That's true formally. But don't you see it isn't? And as though mere description weren't already explanation. You either describe in terms of this position or you describe in terms of the Christian position. You say the facts are these. That's describing them. But you're describing them in terms of creation and fall and redemption if you're describing them truly. And that's explaining them. That's not exhaustively explaining them. You admit and gladly admit that you can't exhaustively explain, that your explanation is an analogical explanation. And here you have that word analogy once more. A true biblical reform notion of analogy must be set squarely over against the Roman Catholic notion of analogy and back of it the non-Christian notion of analogy. Now here then is this world. Every day I thank God for common grace. Because without it, there would be no foundation for redemptive grace. And the two are brought together in Christ. All things are created in him. All things are sustained by him. Even the unbeliever is sustained and held up by God in his patient endurance through Christ. Because Christ has, er, is earnestly calling men to repentance. Wist ye not, says Paul, that these things are given you, that you might, seeing these things, return unto God your Creator? Calvin's Institutes is just full of that, that man should return, and that the facts of nature within him and round about him are all calculated to be calls to repentance. You're a covenant breaker. 
In Christ alone can you become a covenant keeper, and only if you're covenant keepers will you escape the wrath of God to come and enter into his blessed presence. Now you see how important common grace is, even from the point of view of the Christian. Because, don't you see, in the first place, we should say about the non-Christian precisely what the Bible says about him. The confession does that when it says that for the matter of it, that is, as far as the material is concerned, non-Christians have discovered many truths, and they have done many good things. They are so far forth good and true, but, don't you see, they are elements of truth. Now, there isn't maybe a better word available that I know of, but they have to be taken out, and you can use with their discoveries, and you can cooperate with people that are not Christians. When you go down somewhere on the slippery road pretty soon when the snow comes and you slide into the ditch over there or somebody else who is not a Christian whom you know. I have neighbors of whom I'm 99% certain that they are not Christians because I've talked to them about it. Suppose they slide down the hill. Am I not supposed to help him to get out of the ditch? And wouldn't he of his own accord help me out of the ditch? And when I'm short of fuel after a while, don't you think he's going to give me a few gallons of oil? Maybe he... I would rather do business with Mr. X, the grocery man who's not a Christian, than with Mr... I was going to say Y, but that wouldn't fit in. (laughs) Mr. Y, who is a Christian. I used to cheat a lot. When I was on the farm, we raised potatoes, and we'd put the little ones in the bottom and the nice big ones on the top, don't you see? That was cheating, and I was a Christian. And my neighbor, who wasn't a Christian, he didn't do that. If anything, he put the little ones on top and the big ones on the bottom. Now, don't you see? I would rather deal with a non-Christian grocery man, if he's honest, if he's got lots of common grace... Than with a Christian who has a lot of special grace but no common grace or little of it. Now, don't you see? In principle, and that is, I think, all important. In principle, the two are antagonistic to one another because this man lives from the two circle position. That's his heart, and from the heart are the issues of life. He doesn't live up to his convictions. Far from it, no one does. But here's the non-Christian, and he has only one circle, and he is principally opposed, and the clash is absolute. And that's why we speak of an absolute antithesis. And Dr. Maslink, the Christian Reform Minister at the time, criticized my point of view, and he says, Van Til believes in the absolute antithesis, which he interprets to mean that I thought human beings, not Christians, were as bad as they could be. They were really satanic directly. Well, I never said or dreamed any such thing. Because, don't you see, what the Bible obviously says, that they are restrained in many instances we're told about in the Bible from doing wickedness. And then we're told, and this is what Kuiper meant by the positive aspect, they are able to build wonderful things. You and he are building, each of you, a cottage or a house, nice house. And don't you see, you help him to build up lift up some beams that are too heavy for one person alone. He helps you, and you eat lunch together, and you have a good time together, and you laugh, and you smile together. And you say, isn't this a nice rainy day? 
don't you see? Or a nice sunny day, whichever you like better. Aber, when it comes time to discuss basic issues, then I say to my neighbor who has a cow, a red cow, and he uses green grass, and that red cow gives white milk after having eaten green grass. And then he says, we're all evolutionary product, therefore his children are children of chance, as he is a child of chance. Don't you see? Then I say, I have a universe, and God has given green grass and red cows and white milk and covenant children. And I raise up my children as covenant children, don't you see? In principle, we are diametrically opposed. But in practice, don't you see, the situation is never complete. And how we thank God for it. The picture of the Bible, when it talks about the coming of the day of judgment, is that wickedness will increase. And therefore, there will be less common grace. People are growing more and more wicked in the expression of their lives. What's in their heart comes out more consistently. Now, don't you see, we have to pray for the restraint of God of that. And yet, it's only because he expresses that self more violently that iniquity comes complete and that then the iniquity of the Israelites, of the Canaanites, is fulfilled and that then's the time for the coming in of the, son of, of the day of the Son of Man. So we're again apparently contradictory even in our prayers. Now, there then, I would say, we ought to, by all means, take the fully biblical position and be conscious of the fact that its alternative is chaos. Then we ought to take the fully Protestant position against the Roman Catholic Church, which builds the Christian position, so-called, but tones it down as it builds on the doctrine of nature, because what else could they do? No manner of Christianity that's true to the Bible could be attached to and built as a second story upon what the Greeks had produced. Now there's finally Karl Barth and neo-orthodoxy. When a while back, quite a while back, Emil Brunner was still writing, he argued against Karl Barth for common grace, mind you. And a Christian reform minister by the name of Edward Tannis said, we're closer to Brunner. Brunner's closer to us than Bart, because don't you see how Bart doesn't believe in common grace. And Brunner does believe in common grace. And then somebody in the South said, no, we're closer to Bart, because he believes in special grace. And Brunner doesn't believe very much in special grace. Well, I would say a plague on both your houses. <laughs> For the simple reason that what Brunner and Barth both mean by common grace isn't an iota tittle of content in common with what the historic Reformed theologians mean by that or have meant by that. Don't you see? That's the confusion, worse confounded, in which we find ourselves. And so we are not closer to Brunner than to Barth or to Barth because both of them are basing their thinking on Kant. Brunner is outspoken in saying that his philosophy of religion is critical in the sense of Kant's philosophy as a whole, which means that man knows nothing about God. How can a God of whom you know nothing, how can you say of it that he gives you grace or that he gives you special or common grace? Nothing can be said of him. 
Well, Bart says you can say nothing about common grace and you can say nothing about special grace. You can say nothing, period, about God. But you still have to preach, even though you can say nothing. But then you say that grace is senkrecht von oben, as Romans, the book of Romans, which he read over again, with the help of KSK. KS is Klaas Kilder, and SK is Soren Kierkegaard, and the two are diametrically opposed to one another. Now, don't you see, Bart says we, the gospel is gospel of sovereign universal grace, which means it's sovereign, not in the way that Calvin means by sovereign, as though he had the right because he himself, what he does is right, to not save everybody. According to Bart, election of necessity means universal salvation. He says reprobation. Suppose he, God is God is grace. God is grace. And the other attributes, he says, come under that. And therefore righteousness is under grace. And when a man breaks the laws of righteousness, he is reprobate. But he is still under grace. And therefore, reprobation is never the last word to any man. Election is the last word. I saw Karl Barth in Princeton. I can't forego the old man's privilege of telling an old tale. And I had worked on Barth many years. And he was speaking here in Princeton. Dr. Stonehouse took me down. And we tried to see him. We were at three lectures. And Friday night, we finally succeeded. Out he came with the president, President McCord. They let him out. And there he went by. And somebody said to him, here's Dr. Ventil. Are you Ventil? Are you Ventil? You've said so many bad things about me. But I forgive you. I forgive you. Now, in the afternoon, Dr. William Jones, a Baptist fundamentalist, had gone along the streets of Princeton and there was Karl Barth walking with his secretary, and he said, typical American style, Herr Barth, wouldn't you like a ride? Jawohl, jawohl, jawohl. He steps in, and then Jones said to him, I know Van Til, he's a friend of mine. You know Van Til, you know Van Til? Tell him he's a bad boy, he's not going to heaven. Now, in the afternoon, that was the penultimate. But in, in the evening, it was the ultimate. And then I, even I was saved. In the afternoon, I was not going to heaven. But don't you see, there's nobody that doesn't go to heaven, except that there isn't a heaven. But don't you see, then Christianity call, today called me up next day. He said, I hear you had half an hour, a couple hours talk with Karl Barth. I said, about two minutes. Well, I only bring that in for the fun of it. Uh, but it is serious, don't you see? Here we are today. If you believe the Reformed faith, you have this special task assigned you, that there are, in the first place, unbelievers. They occupy largely the field of science and of philosophy. And they work now on the principle of Kant, which is the same principle as that of Aristotle, that man is the center point of reference. Over against that, not Romanism, nor evangelical fundamentalism even, nor even Lutheranism at present in its orthodox expression are willing to take the fully biblical position of saying 
that is absolutely unbiblical and can't be true because what God says is true because he says it. And you say it, what is true is true because I say it. Now, therefore, it's a fight to the death between belief and unbelief. But then, don't you see, let us not, as we were reminded a few days ago, be conceited. But if anything marks the Calvinist, if he's a true Calvinist, it is what August St. Augustine prayed for, give us, O Lord, give us humility. We have been saved by grace. And if we have now a better and more biblical insight into the truth, we've come to this kingdom for such a day as this, that we shall lead the forces of belief in a challenge of the spirit of Antichrist, which is now prevailing and is going to prevail more obviously. I thank you all for your patience. It's been a delight to have this opportunity to get acquainted with so many of you when you now see me on the campus walking. Please ask me some questions, but don't ask me about the astronauts. Ask me about point of contact or the proofs or common grace or something of that sort, and I'll be very glad to talk to you by the hour.